Hello, and welcome to episode six of Speaking for the Fees, a podcast about how every time a Republican takes away important life-saving services, they owe me, personally, money, and double that for the affected communities. Unfortunately, I'm just kidding. This is a Speaking for the Trees, a podcast about environmental activism and justice hosted by two environmental engineers. I'm Ellie. That's Lauren. Hello. And today, we've got our season one finale with probably our heaviest topic, at least emotionally. Uh, we're going to be talking about how race can affect the government's decision on the quality of environment around you, at least in the United States. What specifically are we talking about today, Lauren? Well, we were only going to have five episodes this season. Then some truly horrific shit started happening with the murder of George Floyd. And we decided that maybe we, as two white people, should do our part to educate others, and somewhat ourselves, on some of the dumb bullshit that people of color have to go through in this country. So through our own lens of environmental quality, we will be talking about some examples of environmental racism that are not talked about as often as some higher profile incidences. So first I'll be talking about how exclusionary zoning and air pollution disproportionately affect marginalized racial and ethnic communities in the U.S. Then Ellie will tell us about how indigenous people in the U.S. are generally treated by the government when it comes to environmental quality and talk about a case study, the Church Rock Uranium Spill. Well, that sounds truly doubt, like upsetting. But before we get to that... <laughs> Before we get to the sadness, yeah, are we drinking any fun beverages? Any fun updates? I have a fun update. Why don't you tell us uh, about your beverage, and then I'll talk about my stuff. Uh, I don't remember if I drank this before, but it was still in my fridge from a while ago, so it's totally possible (laughs) that I've done this one before. But I'm drinking (laughs) Virtue Cider, and it's the flavor is Michigan Apple. So I don't know if you have. But even if you have, who cares? Nothing yeah. matters. It's fine. It's really, it's, it's nice. <laughs> it's uh, dry. Um, Would you say it's your favorite cider? Mm, I don't know, but it is like a local one and I do quite like it. I think it's, I think it's got good flavor. And they have one that's like a cherry one. That one's really good too. Ugh, cherry, gross. Um, <laughs> hot take from me. I don't like cherry. Uh, I am drinking boiling cream soda and it is very good, which is why I buy so much of it all the time. And I feel bad for buying individually wrapped, well, not wrapped, but packaged things all the time. Uh, but my fun update is I actually uh, had this update in episode five, but I forgot to talk about it. Me and my partner adopted a cat. Uh, we already have one cat. His name's Caliban. And we got a second cat who was also black with green eyes. And his name is Lucy, short for Lucifer. So we just have two black cats with villain names, um, and they're both very playful, and they love each other very much, and we're just really lucky that they like each other. And they're very hard to tell apart. Uh, I'm actually getting much better at it. I can pretty much just look at their faces now and tell them apart. When I first got Lucy, I had to look at their tails and sometimes even feel their tails to tell which one was which. Um, But I'm getting to the point where I can look at their faces and just know. Sometimes at different angles it's harder, though. But yeah, Lucy has like a bottle brush, like very round, bushy tail, and Caliban's tail tapers off to a point. So that's the easiest way to tell them apart. Hmm. All right. So, Lauren, I'm about to talk for about a bajillion years about some truly heinous bullshit. So why don't you tell our friends how environmental racism just concept works? 
teaching voice. My what voice? Your teaching voice. All right. I don't know. <laughs> Do I have a real one of those? You've been listening to me talk for at least some amount of time. Several hours in the past two days. Um, sort of. It's actually kind of similar to mine. We both kind of pace our words a, cer- a, spe- a specific way. That's a thing I need to focus on is slowing down, enunciating. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I'll just go ahead and start again. So. Go ahead. I. I'll just start by first defining environmental racism. It's sort of a subgenre of the environmental justice movement at large, and it describes forms of environmental injustice that involves race in some measure, either in practice or in policy. So. Here's a quick primer on how the particular brand of environmental racism I'll be discussing operates. I can read it if you want. Yeah, that might be better, actually. All right, so I'm going to take over since I shoved this in the script. Sorry, listeners. Quote, people of color are often subject to housing discrimination and discriminatory zoning, which leads to minority neighborhoods to disproportionately host undesirable land uses, such as polluting industries. Private industry also consciously targets low-income communities of color for polluting operations because property is typically less expensive in those neighborhoods and their residents have less political and economic power than white communities to mount resistance. Weak political opposition also makes state and local governments more likely to approve polluting projects in communities of color than in white communities. Further, underrepresentation of people in color in government, the legal profession, and business contributes to the disproportionate pollution burden in communities of color. Finally, because communities of color lack desirable economic development opportunities, those communities are subject to, quote, economic blackmail, unquote, the promise of jobs, economic development, and tax revenue associated with polluting projects, uh, unquote. So that quote was from an article published in the Natural Resources Journal, and it pretty succinctly sums up the cycle we'll be talking about. Essentially, oh, this is your stuff. You you go on. <laughs> Essentially, there are quite a few problems happening in conjunction and creating an environment where people of color are systematically exposed to more pollution than white communities. So let's start off by talking about something called exclusionary zoning. So let's get into some background on exclusionary zoning. This so, is exactly what, is what I got my geology degree for, is to learn about exclusionary zoning. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a geology joke, but I don't know enough about geology to get it. The, 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 the joke is that this is not interesting to me because it's not rocks. Oh, it's I not see, really I It's see. not really a joke as much as it is like an observation that this is like just legal jargon. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Go ahead. well, I'm g- I'll, let's break it down. Zoning is an urban planning method that permits and restricts certain land uses in inland sectors referred to as zones. So the exclusionary portion of this term comes in when these zoning ordinances have the effect of excluding people protected by law from discrimination from certain districts. So until 1917 in the United States, it was perfectly legal to explicitly have racial zoning ordinances, and many cities had them. One of the first examples of this being successfully implemented was in Baltimore, where the mayor explained the Mm -hmm. policy by saying the following quote. I I feel very uncomfortable reading this. I'm looking ahead. I don't like it. (laughs) 
This is a quote, y'all. Lauren does not feel this way. Yes. So, quote, Blacks should be quarantined in isolated slums in order to reduce the incidence of civil disturbance, to prevent the spread of communicable disease into the nearby white neighborhoods, and to protect property values among the white majority. Well, I feel gross saying that out loud. Uh, So we decided in advance that we were going to uh, have some breaks during this episode uh, for some fun facts from each other. Yeah. Um, Yeah. uh, This seems like a good place as any. You want a SpongeBob (laughs) fun fact or an environmental fun fact? I have both. Whichever. Ellie, just give us our first fun fact. Uh, Okay. Did you know that the original name for SpongeBob SquarePants was going to be SpongeBoy Ahoy? Are you serious? SpongeBoy like Ahoy. The show yeah. or him? Yeah. They couldn't use Both? that. And his name. Yeah. Okay. They couldn't use that since SpongeBoy is a copyrighted term for a mop. Um, specific mop. Huh? So when okay. Steven Hellenberg uh, had to rework the name, he wanted Sponge to be in there because he was afraid kids would think he was a block of cheese. <laughs> oh my god. I got that from Mental Floss, by the way. <laughs> That's my source. Incredible. That makes me feel a little better. All right. Yeah, that's that's the goal. Back to unhappiness. So True. However, after a Supreme Court ruling in 1917 declaring these ordinances unconstitutional, many cities looked to continue these practices in new, legally defensible ways. One of the easiest ways of doing this is to implement rules that allow city planners to essentially price out lower-income populations. Rules like minimum lot sizes and single-family zoning result in de facto discriminatory practices and high concentrations of poverty. Can I ask you a dumb question? Mm-hmm. What does de facto mean? Uh, okay. Uh, de facto means that it's not explicitly stated by law, but it is... What happens. Um, it, but it is what happens in practice, essentially. Got it. That's what I thought it meant, but I just wanted to make sure. It's it's not explicitly by law, because that's now illegal, but it still operates in practice. Got it. Okay, so this is clearly bad, mm-hmm. but it's also worse than what we have discussed so far. Zones that primarily house lower income and racial eth- and ethnic minorities are often targeted for nearby industrial development. This, of course, Mm -hmm. decreases the home equity in these neighborhoods, perpetuating this cycle of systematic discrimination. And this is where we reach the intersection of discriminatory zoning laws with environmental racism. Let's talk about air pollution. So wait. (laughs) Let's start uh, with what exactly are the health effects of air pollution? How harmful is it really? I can't see it, so it can't possibly be hurting me, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's how that works. Uh, (laughs) The World Health Organization attributes 4.2 million premature deaths worldwide per year to ambient air pollution. That is bigger than I would have expected. Yeah, it's larger than I thought, too. That's half the population of Manhattan per year. Yeah, my background's not in public health, so I I was a little surprised, too. Yeah. So, these deaths include deaths due to lung cancer, lower respiratory infection, stroke. Oh no. What is that? <laughs> I can't word? say medical words, but. It looks like Ishmael, ice... but I know it's not that. <laughs> ice, ice, chemic? Is chemic? Heart disease? Some kind and... of heart disease. 
and chronic obstructive pulmonary pulmonary disease. So lots of stuff uh, in your lungs and brain. Heart. Basically. Heart. Yeah. Yes. Um, so additionally, both long and short-term exposure can lead to decreased lung function, respiratory infections, and aggravation of asthma. Maternal exposure to ambient air pollution can lead to low birth weight and preterm births. So these are serious effects, like major public health risks. Mm-hmm. The big pollutants of concern are fine particulate matter, and by fine I mean less than 10 micrometers in diameter, micrometers, that's how you say that. I think both of those are fine to say. I think they are both okay. Um, ozone, nitrogen dioxide, and sulfur dioxide. There are others, but as far as I can tell, these are the most commonly studied. Uh, fun fact that isn't fun at all, the really small particulate matter can, in some cases, even enter the bloodstream. Horrifying. That is so horrifying. Can we get a real fun fact in here, Ellie? All right. Here's my second SpongeBob fun fact. So the way that Bill Fagerbake, Fagerbag, I don't know. I don't know how to pronounce this man's name. So the way that the VA for Patrick voiced him was he would pretend his mouth was in his chest and he would slow his speech down like a lot. That's how he voiced him. Oh, that actually makes a lot of sense now that I'm thinking about Patrick's voice. Yeah. Is that, was that too short? You want another one? No, that's okay. We'll keep going. You gotta get through All this. Right. So every time you get sad, listener, just just like pretend your mouth is in your stomach and talk real slow and maybe you'll feel better. Yeah, <laughs> solid advice. While it is true that the occurrence of asthma in children is in part genetic, it is also true that in the U.S., according to the CDC, childhood asthma affects 6.8% of white children, 7.5% of Hispanic children, and 14.2% of black children. Again, Mm. genetics are a factor. Also, these numbers are not weighted by any further statistics, such as, you know, rural versus urban environments. And it's not, so it's not an apples to apples comparison, but it's concerning nonetheless. It is a number that exists. That isn't great because one is double the other. And the one that is double the other is, of course, the black one. So before we move on, can we perhaps hear an additional fun fact? This is the most fun fact heavy portion, I think, that I have, that I wrote in here. Okay, so Spongebob is hated by homophobic people because the show promotes tolerance and people tend to read Spongebob as gay. To be fair, he is hella gay coded. He has disaster bi energy, I would even say. But the showrunners have come out and said that he is asexual, which honestly is fair because like he is a sponge. Yeah, that's fair. He's a sponge and also a children's character. Understandable. True. Yeah, that's my fun fact. Okay, so uh, this next section I have titled Statistical Validation. So basically oh, this riveting. is... I I know. It's, <laughs> it's basically for me to cite some studies so that you know that I'm just not talking absolute horseshit. So, as I said previously, comparing raw percentages of the entire U.S. population is not the most informative way of looking at the data. Uh, Luckily, plenty of researchers have found statistically interesting ways of examining it instead. Marginalized racial communities have been shown in multiple studies as being disproportionately affected by air pollution. 
In fact, in 2018, researchers in the EPA's National Center for Environmental Assessment published a study in the American Journal of Public Health that calculated the burden of air pollution exposure by both racial and ethnic groups and Thank you, Lucy. Status. <laughs> Hi, honey. <laughs> Hello. He sounds like such a kitten. I love him so much. Hi, sweetie. Oh, that was a nice little pick-me-up. You can continue. He's gone now. They found that those in poverty were exposed, on average, to 1.35 times the amount of particulate matter of 2.5 micrometers or less diameter in comparison to the average population. So basically, uh, they're by a factor of 1.35, almost yeah. two times the amount. Not almost two times the amount, but it, it significantly almost. higher. It's, it's so, more than one times. Yes, it is more than one times. Non-white yes. individuals had exposures of 1.28 times higher than the overall population, and black populations had exposure rates of 1.54 times higher than the overall I'm population. I'm so surprised. So, essentially, the study found that these disparities were present not only at a national scale, but also held true at most state and county levels as well. So what can we take away from this? Mm. Well, it's a pretty good indicator that while socioeconomic status absolutely factors into air pollution exposure, race is the most predictive factor in how much air pollution a person living in the U.S. is exposed to. Jesus fucking Christ. Okay. So another recent study published in 2019, carried out by researchers from the University of Minnesota and the University of Washington, determined that on average... Non-Hispanic whites experienced approximately 17% less exposure to air pollution than is created by their consumption of goods and services. I don't understand that sentence. Their study found that white people were experiencing 17% less uh, air pollution burden than their consumption of goods and services would... Would seem to... Yeah, okay. ...than was being produced by their consumption. Got it. So... So, on the other, even worse hand, black people experienced a pollution burden 56% higher relative to their consumption, and Hispanics experienced a burden 63% higher relative to their consumption of goods My and jaw's services. on the floor. That's such a big number. I know. So, why this large of a disparity? Well, the reason is, shocker. White Americans consume significantly more pollution-intensive products than other racial and ethnic groups. So this is as much caused by consumption habits as it is by the amount of pollution actually breathed. Ellie, please hit us with a fun fact. Or just fucking hit me, I don't really care. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let me let me pick like the most wholesome let me pick the most wholesome one. Let's do Okay. So this is a direct quote from infoplease.com. SpongeBob lives in a pineapple because pineapples are a common motif in Polynesian crafts. In addition, Hillenberg says he thought SpongeBob would like the smell of a pineapple home. Smell is a very important sense for sea animals, unquote. I guess I made it a little better. It's pretty <laughs> cute to know that sea animals smell things. Uh, so there's been a lot more research validating these disparities than I've touched on here because I mentioned two studies. Um, and I'll be including links for a few few of these, um, for these studies and a couple of additional studies. Um, they will be available on our website. 
Yes, that will exist right, by the Ellie, time we launch this. Talk to me about something else that sucks. Before I begin this section, I would like to give a content warning. I do mention violence, violence against women and children, and slavery and the practice of scalping. So if you find that triggering, this section is going to be, you know, heavy. So Lord is going to try to break the tension with some fun facts. Um, the bulk of the really awful violence against Native people is just in the beginning of this section. So if you want to skip to the environmental content, feel free to skip the first to the first fun fact that Lauren is going to give after this section. And if I did my calculations correctly and I read slowly enough, it'll be about two minutes from now. So see you then. <clears throat> For those of us who don't live in the United States, or do live in the United States and live under a rock, Indigenous and Native people on this continent are treated like third-class citizens. I can only do a shallow dive on exactly how they are treated socially, because the scope of this podcast is environmental ramifications of racism and how that affects the health and well-being of the people affected. But if you're really interested in learning more in depth about how indigenous people are treated here, please listen at the end of my segment for a handy reading and listening list. <sighs> so let's start from the beginning. Right from the start, white people's interactions with native groups were never meant to establish trade as equal parties or learn new things about the continent. It was to subjugate or completely eliminate the natives. Natives were used in wars against other colonizers killed indiscriminately, including women, children, explicitly, and their children were sold into slavery. An entire bounty market was started for native scalps, proving that the native person was killed. George Washington himself endorsed these practices. Oh, Nowadays, the violence takes a different form. Native communities are, by a wide margin, the most impoverished minority group in the United States. As a result of policies over the decades, Reservation housing is completely unacceptable. Rolling blackouts, plumbing issues or a complete lack of plumbing, and other shitty conditions are the norm, not the exception. Though Native Americans are not a monolith, and some have it better, some have it worse. Indigenous communities have, by a wide margin, the poorest health among the different population groups in the United States. Alright, here's an extreme content warning about the violence part. Uh, don't even get me started on the violence towards women that goes on either. 84% of Native women surveyed said that they had experienced violence. 84%. By the way, if a white person comes onto the reservation and does some bullshit, then leaves, there is very little that either government can or will do about it. Jurisdiction issues tie up progress in and around these communities. But you know, the United States is a developed country. Okay. All right, welcome back, people who skipped because of the trigger warnings. You are now safe. Uh, Lauren, let's hit us with that first fun fact. Oh, man. Yeah. I feel really stupid saying fun facts after this show. Please, shit. please lighten the mood. I'm dying. <laughs> okay. Uh, so I have, like, a couple of Pokemon fun facts, and then I have, like, a few animal fun facts because I ran out of fun Pokemon facts that or facts that I thought were fun. So, Pokemon Gold and Silver were originally planned to be the final Pokemon games. That was Generation 2 of the Pokemon games, and the most recent release, Sword and Shield, was Generation 8, so you're pretty wrong. <laughs> they tried to predict, and they did not succeed. <laughs> well, they didn't think that they would sell so well. They sold so well. <laughs> Hi, Lucifer! Alright, so... In addition to the often awful living conditions, violence, lack of rights, and blatant racism affecting all facets of many of their lives, indigenous people's land is often co-opted for undesirable use that other communities don't want. And this is going back to what Lauren was talking about. For example, 
When a pipeline is vetoed and blocked by every other community nearby, the native reservation is where that pipeline will be built. I am, of course, referring to the Dapple situation out west. This, quote, not in my backyard, quote, unquote, mentality that the white majority has has direct ramifications on the native communities nearby. White people have the privilege and rights to stand up and say, hey, actually, I don't want that ugly pipeline that will definitely spring a leak near my house and pollute my drinking water, and have that objection treated with respect. But when an indigenous population does the same thing, they are met with rubber bullets and tear gas, literally. They are ignored, and the pipeline is built anyway. And then it springs a leak. Like they fucking said it would. Lauren, hit us with a fun fact. <laughs> okay, I'm hoping that I have enough. So Clefairy was originally <laughs> intended to be Ash's starting Pokemon instead of Pikachu. Oh, I'm glad they, they switched it. Clefairy sucks. I mean, like, I don't know anything about competitive, so like maybe it's surprisingly good. There, I am going one hundred percent just based off her aesthetic. <laughs> yeah, no, it's not it's I mean, I get what they were kind of going for, like, kind of like a Kirby thought. I actually don't know when Kirby released, so maybe that was after, but... I love Kirby. I, like, I kind of see where they were coming from. They thought that it was, like, cute and pink. Very round. Likeable, but not as, it's not as likeable as Pikachu. Pikachu's, and that's just fact. Pikachu is good design. All right, mm-hmm. back to the nonsense. So... We've established some context for the government's continued steamrolling over the indigenous rights in the United States. So now let's talk about my specific case study today, which is the church rock uranium mine spill that affected the Navajo Nation. The Navajo Nation is out west with their land in Utah, Arizona, and New Mexico. They actually call themselves the Diné. The extent of their land is 27,000 square miles, though it is discontinuous. If you look at a map of the reservation, there's actually one big chunk and several smaller blobs surrounding it. Also, the Hopi Nation is just inside the Navajo Nation. Like, they have a reservation within the reservation, which I learned when I did this research, and I thought was neat. If you're like, I swear to God, I've heard of these folks, but I don't know where. The answer is probably World War II. The Navajo language is so unique that it was used as code for encrypting messages during the time, which is super cool. Anyways, they have their own government, which formed in 1920s to deal with the United States when oil was discovered on their land. I'm sure you're shocked. It's <laughs> it's similar to the United States government, with the three branches, executive, legislative, and judicial. Their sessions are actually held in Navajo, not English. Uh, the reason I'm telling you all this is because I don't want you to think this nation has no organization, no systems in place to deal with these things, and no sovereignty. This is basically a tiny country within our country. One would think we'd treat them with some respect, like we would other foreign dignitaries, but, uh, spoiler alert, we don't. So, in 1919, Congress banned the creation of future reservations, and made the existing reservation lands leasable to the indigenous people. This made it much easier for the United States government to claim mining rights on these lands. In 1944, Mm. the United States began mining uranium ore on Navajo land. I'm sure you can guess, based on the timing, what that was for. (sighs) Yep, Project Manhattan. Mining was done over 1,000 feet below the Earth's surface. The ore was brought to the surface and processed in a nearby facility. When the ore is removed from the surrounding rock, it is is pounded into a slurry of rock particles and water, which are then placed in a tailings pond so the water and rock can separate. Basically, um, as the water just sits there, the rock particles fall out to the bottom. It's a pretty standard practice for hard rock mining. I just, it was familiar to me because of 
how we treat water yeah. and water treatment. It's, it's sedimentation. It's literally sedimentation. So this is pretty standard practice yeah. for hard rock mining. You can see tailings bonds in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania as well from coal mining, which are just bright fucking orange. And uh, I wrote here that my source is my geology degree. <laughs> Everyone take a shot. I mentioned my geology degree. These mines are big operations. They need people to, you know, mine them. And who better than the conveniently close population of brown people to underpay? Now, the dangers of uranium mining were already known at this point in time. In fact, they known for 20 whole years. But that didn't stop the Atomic Energy Commission from hemming and hawing on writing some kind of safety standards for the miners. Because that would delay the development of Project Manhattan. You know, the one with the atomic bombs that fucking destroyed two civilian cities in Japan. You know, the one with that multiple generals objected to because it was a giant waste of A, time, B, resources, and C, human lives, I guess. <sighs> now, as a Jewish person, I would love to get into the moral ramifications of the various actions that various countries took during World War II, but we just don't have the time. So let's go on to what happened to these miners. It would be 33 whole years before the fact that the Atomic Energy Commission knew the health risks of uranium mining and didn't set standards would be known by the general public. There were 4,137 Navajo uranium miners. 25% of these people died of lung cancer. 25%. Don't worry, though. The law's on their side with the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act, right? Right? Of course not. Because those dang Indians smoke so much. 70% of them don't. The United States government required a lung test and a certain threshold level of radioactivity in their lungs to be passed to get any kind of compensation for this horrible, awful disease. Lung, lung cancer is no joke. It sucks. Studies since then have proven that the workers have statistics on their side and that, yeah, the fucking uranium mine work caused the fucking lung cancer. You dumb fucks. All right, Lauren, hit us with a fact. I'm dying. Yeah, this blows. Okay, so... <laughs> We're on to my animal fun facts. Excellent. So my next one is seahorses can swim up, down, and backwards. Also, they mate for life. Oh, that's so cute. I didn't know they could mate for life. Yeah. Is there seahorse I... divorce court? Seahorse divorce? I... I don't know. I mean, like, <laughs> I mean, the no. males carry the, carry the children. So Big fan of that. Would love I don't to know. submit that to our species. All right. So, in addition to the miners, the people who lived near the mines also suffered health effects. As I've mentioned, there were no regulation of the sites with high radioactivity. Also, the materials that contained radioactive waste in the unmarked sites were used to build houses people lived in for years. As a result of many years of exposure to literal, literal radioactive waste, Many people developed kidney disease, hypertension, and diabetes. Hypertension is just high uh, blood pressure, which can lead to strokes, by the way, in case you don't know that. Now you may be thinking, wow, this is horrible and I'm super angry. I bet this is the end of Ellie's segment, because that seemed like the climax. No. No, it's not. Buckle in, chuckle fucks, because it gets even fucking worse. Woohoo! <laughs> oh. <laughs> I haven't even gotten, I haven't even gotten to the church rock spill yet. This is just a preamble. So, on July 16th, 1979, a disaster occurred in Church Rock, New Mexico. One of these tailing ponds dams broke, causing the, quote, single largest release of radioactive material in U.S. history, unquote. 
with 1,100 tons of waste and 94 million gallons of water, all radioactive, bursting from this pond. That day, a normally dry street bed flooded with yellow, foul-smelling water. The spill released 46 curies of radiation into the environment, three times the amount that Three Mile Island spilled in. The sewers were backed up with radioactive water and slurry. People who walked in the riverbed that day to go round up their livestock or check on their neighbors later reported that they got blisters and sores on their feet and legs. But don't worry, it gets worse. Do you want to insert? I don't actually have a, a fun fact break in here, but I feel like the, the mood requires it. I'm run. I straight up like you're gonna have to send me your animal fun facts because like uh I I, I can I can read one. Let's see. Oh, I I have like one last one. Okay, we'll save it for the but, actual like, one. Whatever. I will read. I will read this stupid one, which is the episode called "Best Day Ever" was season four, episode twenty. So the best day ever was on four twenty. There, I feel better. <laughs> Oh, back to this bullshit. The dam of the pond was known to be structurally unsound by both the state and federal government. Just let that sink in. They knew. Large cracks had been noted in the dam in 1977, two years before this disaster. And yes, it is classified as a disaster. Plus, the pond itself was built on geologically unsound land, with sediment settling downwards all the time. So, kind of sinking, basically. In addition to the surface mm. water being fucked, as you can imagine, two aquifers <laughs> excuse me. Oh my god. Two aquifers, also known as underground stores of groundwater that happen naturally in rock, were tainted. Pollution traveled Actually, Lauren, let me hear you guess. How far downstream do you think these pollutants went? Um Oh god. Just guess just guess. Just guess. Uh like Probably a couple hundred miles. Oh, that's actually more than I was expecting you to say. No, it was about 80.8 miles, or 130 kilometers. Okay. It's still fucking abysmal. Okay. That's still not good. Yeah, it's still pretty bad. <laughs> um, the people were in the area were told not to drink the water. Duh. I, uh, I actually will give the UNC some credit here, because they did provide bottled water and dug new wells for watering livestock, which is the bare fucking minimum after this horrible disaster. When cleanup eventually started, the United Nuclear Corporation reluctantly dug up some of the radioactive sediment from the Puerco River, where most of the spill on land went. Lauren, I have another a guessing game for you. What percent of the sediment was dug up by the UNC? I'm gonna guess a cool fifty percent. Oh, that's a really, that's a really, you're over, over by a bit. Yeah, I'll give you one more guess. Uh. 30? Uh, no, it was actually one. One percent. Just one. Just one percent. One percent of the sediment. Just the one. Just the one, huh? Just one percent. Just the one percent, huh? <laughs> just one percent of this, uh, radioactive sediment was dug up by the UNC. <sighs> I am now oh going to read God. a oh direct quote from the Stanford University article on the subject. As an environmental engineer, it is possibly the most frustrating two sentences I have ever read. Quote, Later that year, the governor of New Mexico denied requests from the Navajo Tribal Council's Emergency Service Coordinating Committee to declare the region as a federal disaster area. Less than five months after the spill occurred, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission permitted the United Nuclear Corporation to resume operations at the Church Rock Mill, unquote. 
Oh my good god. Oh my god. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Oh. 1973. Oh my god. Uh, my parents were alive then. They were in college. Um. <laughs> uh, I mean, oh my god. Yeah, my mom was 20. Yeah. Christ. Okay. <laughs> Lauren, please. <laughs> Hit us with that fun fact. That you have saved. Okay. Uh, my... My next fun fact is that there are only eight species of bears in the world, and they are all fantastic. <laughs> That's my fun fact. There's eight of them. <laughs> got me. <laughs> oh, I want to go back in time and kick Wait. everyone's ass. Anyway, let's move on. Let's dissect what I just said from an ethical perspective. The government denied, sorry, the governor denied requests to make the area declared a federal disaster area. Remember earlier when I told you that this is the single largest radioactive spill on U.S. soil that's ever happened? I would think that anyone with half a brain would say, uh, yeah, that sure is a disaster, huh? Now, uh, why do you think that it wasn't declared a federal disaster site? Could it be that money would then need to be spent to clean up the spill and the governor didn't want to spend the money on an area inhabited by people he saw as subhuman? Who's to say? <sighs> then, my other ethical thing I'd like to point out, the Nuclear, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission allowed the UNC to continue mining the area after observing cracks in the dam that had been holding the tailings pond in check. The state and federal government said, this seems fine, and just let them continue mining the area without so much as a slap on the wrist. Could it be that the state and federal government didn't care about the health effects that they already knew would happen to the community affected? Oh, also, the continued mining led to more groundwater contamination, because of course it did. The groundwater contamination is what finally put the Church Rock Mill on the EPA National Priorities List in 1983, ten years later. Uh, I have, I have, um, an, I would, I would love. You have, you gotta, I, you gotta provide your own fun fact. I, I would love a fun fact. Oh, you couldn't find it? Okay. That's fine. Yeah, I cannot see the document. That's Don't know what happened. Due to technical reasons, I will be reading the next fun fact. So, uh, environmental activists. Activist? Environmental activist Jadev Payang started planting trees on a barren Indian sandbar in 1979 when he was 16 years old. Today he lives in the forest he planted, which covers over 1,300 acres and is home to rhinos, tigers, deer, apes, and elephants. That's from Bored, That's from Bored Panda. I love that fun fact. It's very good. Okay. Oh, boy. Now, I would love to tell you all the health effects of the spill on the community. But other than increased rates of kidney disease, I can't. Because other than the initial studies done on the livestock tissue, water, plant tissue, etc., uh, there, there wasn't much scientific investigation done here. Pretty much every scientific article I read pointed out that very little investigation into the health effects of the Navajo people has been done. One article sums it up nicely. Quote, Because the spill happened in the immediate aftermath of the nationwide coverage of the Three Mile Island release, the muted coverage and response is particularly striking. It is not clear that there was acute harm from the Church Rock spill, so like Three Mile Island, 
The main concern is the development of disease over time after exposure. In contrast to Three Mile Island, the population near Church Rock was already chronically exposed to uranium mine and mill waste through both occupational and environmental routes and continues to be exposed today." Unquote. Nowadays, one in five uranium mines are within 10 kilometers of a Navajo reservation. Sites are, quote, unmarked, unfenced, and located only through historical memory or mining records, unquote. Now, Lauren and I have worked with these types of records before. Lauren, how accurate would you say these old-timey descriptions of spills are? Like, pretty bad. It's pretty pretty bad. Pretty bad. They're, they're, that's right, they're god-awful. Just woefully bad. Truly not helpful at all. Uh, I once spent two hours trying to find a well buried under someone's driveway because the old description from the 80s was just not accurate. Luckily, I did have a metal detector with me, or else I'd still be out there. <laughs> Let's talk about cleanup. The EPA stepped in in the 1980s to try to fix this shit, in conjunction with the Navajo Nation's own EPA. After screening over 800 structures, they have compensated people for about four, uh, for 34 structures and 18 yards. Yards is in, like, Backyard, front yard, not like yards as in measurement, uh, that they demolished okay. th- that were contaminated. So they paid they paid out Navajo citizens for 34 structures and 18 yards. They also went around and characterized sites to figure out which ones needed their immediate attention. Most notably, 226 sites still have radiation levels 10 times higher than normal. And the EPA progress report says, quote, people should stay away from those sites, unquote. No shit! They Oh boys. Yeah. <laughs> they also <laughs> they have also removed an ambiguous amount of contaminated soil and fenced areas off. The report says the plan was to remove one million cubic yards, but it doesn't say if that's what actually happened because government documents are never actually specific and it's terrible and annoying. <sighs> According to the Navajo or Dine people themselves, there are people who live downwind of the spills that are super traditional and know nothing about how the radiation is affecting their lives, but have inc- they have increased rates of cancer anyway. Mostly, the DNA are frustrated with the lack of action. They are saying that enough studies and risk assessments have been done in the past 40 years, but not enough actual action. Did I say 40? I think I meant 50, because it, it happened in the early 70s. Damn, we're... Damn, that was so long ago. Okay. Not enough actual action in the past 50 years has happened. The only organization that seems to be in their corner, they say, is the EPA. The Navajo government selected a federal lobbyist to lobby specifically about the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act, who starts work in September 2020. So this shit is still happening, (sighs) y'all. Oh my god. Congrats on listening or reading to the end of this very frustrating segment. As a reward, here's more homework. (laughs) Here's the reading list I mentioned. So, a book called An Indigenous History of the United States by Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. This book gives a ton of context on colonization and how it still affects indigenous people today. I am actually still reading it. I also, um, I was going to mention, I think I ended up cutting this. Uh, There is a wine and crime episode uh, called Reservation Crimes that um, sheds a lot of light on the violence that uh, is experienced in the indigenous community. Unfortunately, I uh, can't find any transcript of this episode, so those who need to read, I uh, will alternatively suggest the website minorityrights.org, linked in our transcript. I also recommend reading articles about uranium mining published by Native News Online, since these are written by the Navajo themselves. Uh, And you can read about the cleanup effort on the EPA's website, nebulous though it may be. 
And thus ends my second. Yeah, quite a few sources. <laughs> yes. So yeah, please read up oh, on it. Boy. Obviously, I'm not this. I'm just some white person. I don't. <laughs> I'm. I am but one person who looked at some things online. Well, that was about as upsetting as I thought it would be. Wow, I. I, don't, I think I underestimated how tired I would be at the end of this. <laughs> it's, it's pretty good. The, the good news is, listeners, is I um, we pre-recorded an episode that we are never going to release because it ended up being stupid boring. But at the end of that episode, we have this wonderful segment uh, in Dangerous Species Corner about the kakapo. And I will now insert that audio, and I'm sure it'll sound completely different. Sorry about that. So the first one I'm going to talk about is a very charismatic little guy. It's called a kakapo from New, Eng- uh, New England. That's where I am. New Zealand. <laughs> oh, um, I've heard of these. He's from New I Zealand. I used to watch a ton of Animal Aren't Planet as a child. Yeah, so basically um, it's a fat green parrot with a ba- barn owl-like face, a slender beak, and a penchant for humping scientists' heads. Uh, uh, if you've ever seen that gif of the guy who's like, you're being shagged by a rare parrot. That's a kakapo. Uh, um, okay. That's when I a, say that's a, that's a fact <laughs> about a bird, it sure is. Yeah. So uh, these guys don't actually fly as much as they kind of run around um, on the ground and climb trees occasionally. Um, they are when I say fat, they are about seven to eight pounds. They're like cat sized. My parents' pet birds are weighed in ounces. So this thing is basically me as an infant sized. <laughs> um. Their mating rituals are ridiculous. The males will dig depressions in the ground and they will make paths to said depressions and then make, quote, a booming noise. I don't know what that means. <laughs> Didn't look it up, but holy crap, that's so funny. Oh, and this is important. The females only get horny when a certain tree fruits. <laughs> so like. What? <laughs> yeah. Like, no wonder they're fucking endangered. This makes no sense. (laughs) Basically, the only time... (laughs) The only time... (laughs) The only time they can... They ovulate or whatever the bird equivalent is to ovulating is, is when this very specific tree fruits. Oh my god, imagine you had to eat, like, a mango to get pregnant. Like, what is that? (laughs) (laughs) It's... It's like the bird equivalent of the fact that koalas only eat eucalyptus and nothing else. <laughs> like, it doesn't make sense. Or am I thinking of pandas only eating bamboo? One or the other. Anywho, I'm, I'm no animologist. So here's the sad part. Um, there's only 142 oh. kakapos in the wild right now. Think about that. There's 7 billion people and 142 kakapos. Um, they're, I'm going to talk about the causes of their endangerment. So, you know, brace yourself. Um, they're they're the usual. No natural predators until humans came. The humans ate a whole bunch of them because, I mean, to be frank, they kind of look delicious. I don't blame them. Um, <laughs> humans are assholes. <laughs> um, plus, we introduce a lot of pests. So specifically, rats are the pests that we've introduced. They eat eggs right off the ground. Um, and another pest we've introduced is cats. 
I guess New England didn't, or New England, God damn it. <laughs> I have a master's degree. Anyway, New Zealand uh, didn't have any cats until humans introduced them. So now there's feral cats on the island and they yeah. um, are a problem as well. So nowadays we actually are, so you know how that last segment didn't have mm-hmm. a happy ending? It's still ongoing and terrible. Good news. This We're actually trying to correct our mistake. And the strategy that the scientists are employing is pretty oh. comprehensive. So that's exciting. Um, we're, t- we're talking around the clock surveillance of nests to protect against predators. I like mean, each goddamn nest has a half camera. of 142 we're talking- nests in theory. <laughs> you know what? That's fair. <laughs> that's fair. That's true. I didn't even think of that. <laughs> that's not that many cameras. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's like... Oh, okay. I guess I'll borrow my son Daryl's cameras because he has this weird hobby. Anyway, um, we're we're talking hand raising the chicks with supplemental food so that the nutritional scarcity isn't an issue. We're talking about shipping these birds around to different islands for gene diversity. Humans are like basically taking animals around to get laid. It's very wait, okay. funny. Wait, so like the birds live on different islands, like. So there's, it's not just like one island with these birds. Yeah. So New Zealand, I believe is, yeah, I think the kakapo is like native to New Zealand, like the area. I think there's also some islands around New Zealand. To be honest, I don't know the geology slash geography of that area very well. So I couldn't tell you, but basically there's a few islands where these guys are indigenous and the, and the humans are shipping them around to make sure that the gene pool stays as diverse as it possibly can be because you don't want too much inbreeding. Because that's not good for its, um, you know, situation down the road. And finally, we're also talking about establishing a captive population in case all of these other measures don't work. Obviously, that's the that is the last resort plan Z. Um, You don't want just to have a captive population because that basically you would still have it be extinct in the wild. It'd be declared extinct. So ideally, these other measures will work. Um. Just to add my own commentary in here, uh, 142 birds isn't, even though we're trying our best to like shuffle them around and play like matchmaker here, 142 birds is not a lot of gene diversity. Sure, evolution will take care of it in a thousand years or so, but the inbreeding until then, in order to get the population back up to a safe level, will have taken its toll on these animals. That's why it's important that we don't let populations fall this low of any animal or plant. I feel like plants aren't included in this conversation, and they should be. Basically, any endangered species shouldn't fall this goddamn low, is what I'm saying. Thanks for hanging out with me, Ellie, and our best friend, Earth. Uh, so, so that's our outro, huh? That's what we're going with? Uh, we'll do it better next time. Hey, thanks for listening to Speaking for the Trees. Feel free to follow our social media accounts. We are at Trees Speaking for both Instagram and Twitter. If you have any topic ideas or corrections, you can go ahead and email those to forthetrees.pod at gmail.com. Our logo is by Tyler C. Hurst. You can find him at at Tyler C. Hurst on Instagram and Twitter. Our theme song is Porch Swing Days Faster by Kevin McLeod. Okay, love you, bye.